Well, good morning, church family. It is good to see you this morning. And today is the day we start our new series, Popular Deceptions of Our Day. If you received an outline like this, sermon outline in the back, you'll notice all the different nine messages. And I will get to those in just a minute. I want to thank Don Erickson uh, for filling the pulpit last weekend while Becky and I were in Honduras. Just to give you a little bit of a flavor, some of you, I know a handful in here, have been to Honduras and what we do. We are, you should know as a church, we have a big heart for the nations and for missions, and we're involved all over the place in a number of areas around the world. But two of our biggest target places are Budapest and in Honduras. And Becky and I had a chance to go there. And I wanted to share a couple things, lest you're not quite aware of what's going on. So the first big question is, why are we involved in Honduras? And we have been for some time, for a number of years. And the answer very simply is Aliadante, which is Spanish for the helper. And you say, well, okay, you may have heard of that or heard something about it. What exactly is it? Well, it's a 12-acre compound located in a very tiny rural village in central Honduras, Lodorena. And in effect, it is a holistic gospel ministry that operates out of that 12-acre compound to minister to local Hondurans in a wide variety of ways, which is exciting. We support three different missionaries down there. One is Mike Nelson. And Mike took us from the airport back. Mike is in charge of all short-term teams that come in. So there's a regular stream of teams coming in from around the country to do projects. Mike is in charge. He is the point person for all the logistics, for all the spiritual care and emotional care that comes in with a team and he has a big job and he lives in that compound and so it was a delight to spend time this is mike's home church typical things teams come to do here are some examples and not every team comes to do the same thing uh, some teams come and will work on installing prefab latrines that are actually built in the compound and then taken out to the local villages or the mountain villages or install natural water filters in home, which obviously is a very essential thing for health. Or some teams come in and do a combination of these things. Some do VBS up in the mountains. Becky and I uh, happened to be there while a team from Barstow, California was there. We didn't do much with them, but we did join them one evening, went up into the mountains and watched them lead a VBS, typical VBS, small rural Pentecostal church up in the mountains. Uh, painting and construction projects, that kind of a thing. Uh, interesting, another thing they do that a lot of people don't realize is that Eliodante helps sponsor weddings. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's very expensive for the average Honduran to get married. And the result is, sadly, lots of men and women, even in churches, sit and they're not married. They live together and they're not married because they can't afford to. Average Honduran earns five, six dollars a day. Average wedding with all the costs involved can be upwards of three, four hundred dollars, and they can't afford it. And so, one of the ministries that some of these teams are now doing, like the one from Barstow, is actually helping to pay for and sponsor a wedding. So, on Friday, just two days ago, two weddings took place on the compound for two Honduran couples. Very practical thing. And the medical teams will go down and get involved. I see Dr. Kevin over here, he is a legend down there. And uh, it was interesting. I have a special greeting on video for you, by the way. You're going to love. And, uh, but we have medical teams that have gone down. So a wide variety of ministries take place. 
Lots of churches support Eliodante. We're just one. You may know we sent down a backhoe recently, courtesy of the U.S. military. When they have free space, they will transport stuff for nonprofits. We sent down a large four-wheel intimidator. We saw both of those down there. In fact, where Becky and I were in our apartment every day, right by the road coming in, I could see our backhoe going out every morning. And so it is used a lot and regularly. Next picture is the uh, road heading into Eliodante as we were with Mike bouncing along. And then the next picture shows you the main gate of the 12-acre compound. And then the other couple we support down there is John and Helen Hovestall, who actually are from Lake Geneva. And John and Helen have been down there for several years. John and Helen oversee the medical clinic that is in the compound, which is an incredible ministry in and of itself. And the next photo shows in the com- that's one of the few places that you all had to wear masks. And so it was a delight to see them. They are beloved by the staff there, and they just have a, such a nurturing a spirit about, about them. Becky was able to speak at a women's seminar for local, just rural Honduran women through translation. And once a month, the entire staff at L.A. Dante meets. We just happened to be there during their once a month meeting. So I had the privilege and opportunity to speak to the entire staff. Most of them Honduran, but there are some North American missionaries there. So if you'd like to know more, we'd be happy to share. Those that have gone, there is a trip going this fall in November. And if you are interested, you can see our missions coordinator, Eileen Paulsgrove. And there are still slots open to be involved on that trip. But we came back extremely impressed with uh, what we saw and what God is doing through the many different ministries of Eliodante. With that, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're starting a new series today, Popular Deceptions of Our Age. It's almost a series you could preach regularly with the speed of the moral revolution and the changes that are taking place in Western culture. But I say Western culture, I'm speaking of places like Canada, America, Western uh, Europe, and perhaps Australia. The changes are coming fast and furious. Even what was true in the moral revolution three months ago has changed. Terminology changes. Different strategies are used, but it's fast and furious. And so it is more important than ever that God's people are staying anchored in the Bible and keeping their head clear about what is it God has said and or not said. So let me give you the goal of the series. The goal of the series is to address some of the most pernicious, deadly, moral, and spiritual deceptions that are invading Western culture right now, especially in America. Deceptions that are, have infiltrated our news media, infiltrated our public schools, infiltrated social media, infiltrated colleges and universities, and even, sadly, many historic Christian colleges and or seminaries. These are deceptions, by the way, that are misleading people, that are damaging individuals, damaging families, damaging marriages, and destroying lives. That is why it is so important that the church has a clear word from God on what God has said. These are deceptions that are at direct odds with what God has spoken in Scripture. And again, let me put up on the screen, these are on your bulletin outline on the back, but these are the nine deceptions. Now, usually my sermon titles are written in the positive because they're advocating what I am saying. These are phrased in the negative, just as a reminder, because they are deceptions we're going to be taking on and critiquing from the Bible. So the nine deceptions 
that we're going to take on over the summer are as follows. The deception that the early chapters of Genesis are myth. And we're going to be looking at or legend or allegory or something, but they're not factual history. That's the one we'll look at today. Then, that God is not a God of wrath. That's the second one we'll look at. Third one is certainly a hot-button topic right now, that we can choose our own gender and identity. This is something that's fluid and something you can decide and undecide and decide differently next week. Fourth deception, that suffering somehow disproves that there's a loving God. That is widespread, uh, not only in the culture, but even in the church. Fifth, that all religions are the same to God. Doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. That is a deception. That is a lie according to the Bible. So we will look at that. Sixth, that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. I actually heard a couple different video clips just this week on YouTube by professing evangelical leaders arguing that one. And so we're going to take a look at why that's a deception. Seventh, couldn't be more pertinent right now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and that is that an unborn baby is somehow not a human life, a deception according to the Bible, and that it is a human life. Eighth, that the God of the Old Testament is a vindictive bully, very common perception among many, unfortunately. And number nine, that the Bible is somehow anti-sex, anti-pleasure. So we're going to take these on. These are not all the deceptions that are floating out there, but I chose nine that are the most common at the moment in our current cultural context so that we go back. And if you are a young person, let me just say this. If you're a kid or a young person, high school, college age, I hope I especially have your attention because this stuff is essential for how you build your life. Ideas have consequences. And what you build your life on, your family, your marriage, will make a huge difference in the outcome of your life. With that, let me give you the premise of our series. I worded this a little differently. I borrowed the wording and tweaked it a bit. And I, I, love, the, I love the way this is phrased. So you'll hear this each week. You hear a lot about hate speech, that if you contradict somebody or say something somebody doesn't like or they get offended, they label you as hate speech. Well, I want to reposition that. And here's the premise of the entire nine-week series, that it is actually an act of love to wreck false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. Now, you could do that in a mean way. So it's, it's not always an act of love if you're cruel or harsh or you're abrasive about it. That's, that's not my point. It is an act of love, maybe we should say, to gently wreck false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. That is an act of love because you're helping someone come to grips with what is true, and that is going to make a difference in their lives. We're going to begin our series by addressing one of the most widespread deceptions about the Bible, and that is the deception and it's even common increasingly, like I said, in a lot of Christian colleges and seminaries, and it is this, that the early chapters of Genesis present something different than factual, literal history. That somehow they're allegory or myth or legend or poetry or something, but they're not literal, historical information. And let me be very clear why this is such a big deal. What's at stake here? If the early chapters of Genesis are myth or legend, not factual history, then we have no clear understanding about the origin of life. No clear word. If the early chapters of Genesis are myth, then we have no definitive explanation why mankind is unique and distinct from the animal kingdom, which is a very important distinction 
biblically, theologically, culturally. If the early chapters of Genesis are myth, then we have no divine blueprint for marriage with a first man, biological man, and a first biological woman in the Garden of Eden, according to Genesis chapter 2. And if the early chapters of Genesis are myth, hear this one, if they're somehow legendary and not factual, we have no authoritative teaching about the origin of sin and our need for a savior. You say, well, why? Because in Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul links our need for a savior back to something that happened in the opening chapters of Genesis, and that is Adam's rebellion. And Jesus is called the second Adam in contrast to the first Adam. And so I hope you start getting a feel for there's a lot at stake if we somehow relegate the opening chapters of Genesis to some status other than factual, literal, accurate history. And so with that, we're going to dive in this morning and look at three reasons, biblical reasons. We're going to be in the text quite a bit here this morning. Three reasons why Genesis, the opening chapters, are factual, real history. Number one. The early chapters of Genesis are historical prose, P-R-O-S-E. I'd like to read the first five verses one more time. And before I read verses one to five, let me just state this. It is hard to overemphasize how critical the first five words of the Bible are. Three in Hebrew, by the way. Five in English translations. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The great writer and uh, Christian author A.W. Tozer, you know the name, Aidan Wilson Tozer, said in his view, there's no more important verse in the Bible than Genesis 1-1 because it lays the foundation for literally everything in a Christian world and life view. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So we know we have a speaking God. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now let me give you one reason why this is so important. The reason Genesis one is so important, is that God was the only eyewitness of creation. So we don't have any other account. He was the only eyewitness to tell us exactly what happened. And there is nothing in the Hebrew text. Why do I say that? Because this was originally written in Paleo-Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in primarily Hebrew, some Aramaic. New Testament was written in Koine Greek. There's nothing in the Hebrew of Genesis 1, nothing that would indicate it's somehow mythological or legendary or allegory. The Hebrew of Genesis 1, just like the English of Genesis 1, is not poetry either. We have Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, other passages in the wisdom books. This is not Hebrew poetry. It is straightforward historical prose. And let me just give you an example from someone who is not an evangelical Christian. Dr. Robert Alter taught Hebrew at the University of California at Berkeley. Need I say, not a conservative place. 
And Dr. Robert Alder, however, was a first-class Hebrew scholar. In his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, here's what he says about the opening chapters of Genesis. Now, he doesn't believe that the opening chapters of Genesis are factual history, but I want you to hear a first-class Hebrew scholar tell you how it is presenting itself. So this is what he says, quote, all of these narratives, and he's talking about the opening chapters of Genesis, all of these narratives are presented as history. He didn't believe it, but he's telling you the writer, writers, in his view, are presenting this as real history, and that is as things that really happened. So there you have a critic telling you, well, if just on, on, the, on face value, yes, whoever wrote this, we don't know, he would tell you, but whoever wrote this is presenting this as real history. Well, that's a significant point. And the question is, do you believe it or not? One of my favorite naturalists to watch today on the BBC, some of you may enjoy, David Attenborough. I watched an interview with him recently. He narrates the Planet Earth series and a whole bunch of different these uh, nature documentaries. Unfortunately and sadly, he doesn't believe in God. I watched an interview with him recently, and he said this, the interviewer asked, do you believe in a, in a God when you look at the world and all the design and, and, and the order and creation? And David Attenborough says, you know, I don't. And he says, I have a quarrel with people who think that the book of Genesis is literally true. And the interviewer said, why? And David Attenborough said, because if you travel the world as I have and you see all the creation stories all over the place, who knows what's true? Who knows what's false? And he said, I, I don't believe in a God. I don't think there's enough evidence. And I, I sat there and just felt sad. I actually sat there and prayed for him, that God might open his eyes. He's 95 years old. By the way, critics and skeptics tell us that the early chapters of Genesis not only are myth, it is very common, you may have heard this one, well, that chapter one and chapter two contradict each other. You ever heard that one? That's not an uncommon accusation, even in some Bible colleges and some seminaries. Here's the deal. Genesis 1 and 2 don't contradict, they complement. You say, well, how so? Well, Genesis 1 is a wide-angle lens. It is a high-level panoramic view of the creation of the universe. Genesis 2, then, is a zoom lens and gives us a close-up of the creation of human beings. So at the end of chapter 1, this wide-angle lens, you have the introduction of human beings. Genesis 2, then, is a zoom lens to tell us more about that. In fact, many Hebrew scholars point out that Genesis 2 really is just expanding on the sixth day of creation. Let me give another reason for accepting Genesis, the early chapters, as real history. And it's because of attention to detail that is in the text. Look at chapter 2, for example. Verses 8 through verse 14. Another reason to accept these chapters as presenting us literal, factual history is simply because of the attention to detail that you don't see in epic myths, epic writings, epic tales. For example, chapter 2, verses 8 and following, listen with a different ear as I just read these few verses down through verse 14. The attention given, the precision given to geographical detail. Now, it's not that epic myths don't sometimes present a place like in Homer, you'll read about Troy or something, but they're not regularly anchoring you in precise geographical details because that's not what they're about. 
Genesis is different. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Adamah, that's Hebrew, the ground, the Lord God formed, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the ground, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided into four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedlium, onk stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Some of you know the name C.S. Lewis, who taught at Oxford. His specialty was medieval and Renaissance literature. He specialized in epic myths and that kind of genre. And I found it interesting that Lewis said this. He said, you know, when someone asked him, well, is such and such part of the Bible uh, mythological or legendary, like the early chapters of Genesis, Lewis made an interesting statement. He said, I never try to defend the Bible at that point. Instead, he said, as a professor of mythology, I asked them, well, how many ancient epic myths have you read? Often the answer is none or maybe one. And Lewis said, when you read biblical narrative, it reads nothing like epic myths. Why? Because ancient myths are never set in real historical settings with precise, detailed geographical references. He said, they're just not like the Gospels, specifically, or like the early chapters of Genesis. Lewis said, if you read ancient myths, like Homer or Dante or Bhagavad Gita or Beowulf, they have a totally different feel than Genesis, a totally different view, uh, feel than the historical books of the Old Testament, a very different feel than even the uh, historical accuracy of our Gospels. Epic myths, Lewis said, are melodramatic. They are poetic, they're grandiose, they're larger than life, they're filled with gods and heroes, whereas Genesis contains very little poetry lengthy genealogies, historical narratives, and normal people. Normal people that did lots of stupid things. But normal people, just like you and I. Dr. James Hoffmeyer, I'll give you one other interesting quote, who taught archaeology and Hebrew at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. There's a great book on the archaeology of the Old Testament. And as I was reading through it a couple years ago, he made a fascinating statement about the early chapters of Genesis. Now, here's a first-class archaeologist professor of Hebrew who has been over in the Middle East on a number of archaeological digs. And he says this about Moses and the authorship of Genesis and what he was doing. Quote, The author of the narrative, Genesis, goes to great lengths to place Eden within the known geography of the ancient Near East, and not some made-up mythological Narnia-like wonderland. And so there you have a word of a very prominent archaeologist telling us, as Moses wrote this, he went to great lengths to put it right into the geographical context of the ancient Middle East, not some kind of other world or magical wonderland. So that is one of the 
most important reasons to believe that these are actual chapters is the early chapters of Genesis are not myth, they're not poetry, they're not legend or allegory or parables. It is straightforward Hebrew historical prose like much of the other Old Testament. Secondly, this morning, what's the second reason to believe that these chapters, these opening chapters, are actually factual history? And here it is. Because the other biblical writers, especially Old Testament, but even New Testament, viewed Genesis as factual history. They saw it as real history. Now, a lot of people today say they don't, but they did, and at least we need to give them that due. Let me give you a quote that should send a shudder down your spine. Dr. Kenton Sparks is a professor of biblical studies at a professing evangelical college on the East Coast, Eastern University. Now imagine you have a son or daughter, you've paid big bucks, they're sitting there in Dr. Sparks' opening New Te Old Testament survey class. He wrote this in a book, Genesis, History, Fact, or Fiction, page 111. Quote, it is no longer possible for informed readers to interpret the book of Genesis as straightforward history. So here's a professing, Bible-believing, professing, Bible-believing, evangelical Old Testament scholar who would be telling your son or daughter in their class, it's no longer possible for informed readers to interpret the book of Genesis as straightforward history. There was no Garden of Eden no tree of knowledge of good and evil, no serpent that spoke, no worldwide flood in which all living things except for those on a giant boat were killed by God. And then listen to this sentence. Whatever the first chapters of Genesis offer, there is one thing they certainly do not offer, namely a literal account of events that actually happened. Close quote. That goes on in more professing Christian colleges today than you know. One popular writer, I had the privilege to study into this gentleman a number of years ago. He's a brilliant New Testament scholar. He lately has, pardon the pun, but don't pardon the pun, he is evolving, he says in his thinking. And he says, you know, now I view Adam not so much as a literal person, but as a literary person. I don't believe in a literal Adam. He says, I believe in a literary Adam. Notice the sleight of hand. You say, well, what's a literary Adam? Well, it means that Moses, or whoever in his view wrote Genesis, invented someone named Adam to explain some things in Scripture and connect some theological dots, but he wasn't the real first biological man in the Garden of Eden. He was a literary creation, a, liter a literary Adam, not a literal Adam. This is the sleight of hand that goes on in far too many Old Testament classes. That is not how the Old Testament writers viewed. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, for just a minute, to the book of First Chronicles. It's right about in the middle of your Old Testament. I want to show you something that I think is very powerful from the Bible. First Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 1, first word. First Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 1. To give you a feel, what am I doing? I want to show you how the biblical writers viewed Adam and viewed Eve. Now, I need to let you know this. Some of you know this, some of you don't. The book of Chronicles, while it's in the middle 
of our English Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, it's at the end. So if you were to walk in my office today and I pulled my Hebrew Bible off the shelf, I could show you very easily. If you could turn all the way to the end of the Hebrew Bible, you would find one book called Chronicles. We divide it in English into two. A lot of modern Indo-European languages do that, but it's same material, just it's one book in the Hebrew canon and it's at the end of the Hebrew Bible. Why? Because it's a book summing up all of world history, all of biblical history, which it views as one and the same. And it's very interesting that the opening verse in Chronicles, so this, remember, this is at the end of the Hebrew Bible, summing up all of history. And you come down to the opening word, and what do you have? Adam. Seth. Enosh. Adam, Seth, Enosh. Now go back for just a moment to Genesis 5, verse 1. When I take you back to Genesis 5, verse 1, where are we in biblical history? At the beginning of the Old Testament. So Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, to be fair, let me tell you that when Adam, the word Adam, is first used in the opening chapters of Genesis, it is used with a definite article, the word the. And sometimes it looks like, because the word means man or can be mankind, it looks like at times early in Genesis, it is referring to mankind. But when you get into chapters 4 and 5 and following, the definite article is dropped and the name is used without it, indicating it's now a proper name of an actual person as in chapter 5, verse 1. So what's my point? Genesis 5, 1, you're at the beginning of the Old Testament. It starts with Adam. You get to the book of Chronicles. You're at the end of the Hebrew canon, summarizing all history. And what do you start with? Adam. One more thing. If you would turn to the book of Luke in the New Testament, chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 the genealogy of Jesus. I've taken you from the beginning of the Old Testament in Hebrew to the end of the Old Testament in Hebrew, Adam and Adam. Now we're at the beginning of the New Testament. Luke chapter three, and I want you to notice something Luke does. In verse 23, Luke three, you have, you may have a heading there, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Luke's genealogy, by the way, goes the opposite direction of Matthew's. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards. And so verse 23 says, Jesus began his ministry. He was about 30 years old. And then Luke starts to give us the genealogy of Jesus. If you go all the way down to the last verse of chapter 3, verse 38, after a long list of names of ancestors of Jesus, you come to the words, the son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see the connections there? Now, let me, let me make just an illustration here. A lot of you love the Marvel Universe, right? You love the Star Wars Universe. You love the Lord of the Rings Universe. And you'll sit, if you sit with hardcore people, hardcore Marvel lovers or Star Wars lovers or Lord of the Rings lovers, 
they'll sit in movie one or, f- or four or six and go, oh, I remember that from the movie three back, or I remember that from movie two or that from movie six, and interesting to see how this connects to this, connects to this, 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 this. But then they miss those connections in the Bible, and the Bible is filled with those connections. The only difference is these are real and those aren't. No offense to all you Marvel, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings folks. I love Lord of the Rings. But hey, the point is, these connections go on all the time in the Bible. And here, Luke is definitely saying Adam was a real person. So you have the Old Testament opening up, affirming Adam. You have the Old Testament closing, affirming Adam. And you have the New Testament opening up, doing what? Affirming Adam. And this goes on and on and on in the Bible. Let me give you just a couple other examples. I'm just going to whip through these five really fast. First Chronicles 1.4 mentions Noah as a real person. Nehemiah 9.7 affirms the existence of Abraham. Isaiah 54.9, Noah's flood. Ezekiel 14.14 mentions Noah, Daniel, and Job all in one sentence. Noah being from the early chapters of Genesis, or, this is interesting, Hosea 6-7, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. The Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers accepted the literal fact history of Genesis and the opening chapters. Interesting, when you look at the preaching in the early church and study the sermons of the early church fathers, one of the things that will jump out at you is how much time they spent preaching in Genesis because they knew it was essential that they ground their people in a biblical worldview and that all the threads from the New Testament go back to those early chapters of Genesis. And so you find the early church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus and Hippolytus and all the early church fathers spending a lot of time preaching in the book of Genesis. All right, lastly, What's the third reason for accepting these chapters in Genesis, these opening chapters as historical? And that is this, because a historical Adam and Eve are absolutely essential for two critical reasons. They're essential for a bunch of reasons, but I'm gonna zero in on two. So if you're a young person, especially here this morning, kids, teens, those in college, I want you to hear this especially. Why is it such a big deal to have a literal Adam and Eve? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I wanna give you two that I think rise to the surface. Number one, because the gospel is at stake. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter five for just a moment. Romans five, verses 12 through 14. To make my point right from scripture. If we dismiss with a literal historical Adam and Eve, we undermine the gospel. And I'm gonna show you how. Because Paul, as well as Jesus, clearly believed in a historical man named Adam. And Paul traces our whole problem back to Adam and Eve's rebellion. In fact, Paul mentions Eve by name in 2 Corinthians 11.3. So he clearly believed in a historical couple, the first biological man and woman, Adam and Eve. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Notice the theological connections Paul is making here that go back to Genesis in the opening chapters. 
Paul says, chapter 5, Romans, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. All right, let's hear verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. From who to Moses? Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. What am I saying? What is Paul saying? That the gospel and the whole reason for Jesus' coming, the reason we need a Savior, all goes back to the rebellion of Adam in the Garden of Eden. A number of years ago, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian intellectual, and C. Everett Koop, Surgeon General under President Ronald Reagan, wrote a book together called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. I want you to hear what they wrote on pages 156 and 157 about the gospel being at stake in the early chapters of Genesis. Some people mistakenly believe that they can spiritualize away the history of the first chapters of Genesis and then it won't make any difference. They argue that these opening chapters in Genesis are not real history, but something like parables. This type of thinking depreciates the factual content of Genesis which is giving us information about history and the cosmos. Those who do this, who dismiss it, sometimes imagine that doing this makes little or no difference, but it changes everything. For these chapters, early chapters of Genesis, tell us the why of all subsequent history. In effect, if you take those opening chapters of Genesis and relegate them to something other than true history, you have abandoned the gospel. You've undermined the gospel. Let me put it a different way. No Adam, no gospel. Why? Because everything Jesus says or Paul says about our need for a Savior goes back to those opening chapters of Genesis. They assume they were actually factual history. And so the question is, do you? Do I? Second reason why historical Adam and Eve are so critical today, especially in the cultural conversation right this minute, and that has to do with this, because marriage is at stake. Our last passage we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 19. If you would turn there. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Jesus clearly considered Adam and Eve to be a very real historical biological couple. And not just one of many, but the first biological man and woman. Another common sleight of hand this, these days from some Old Testament scholars is to do something like this. Yeah, I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. In fact, there were many Adams and Eves. And God simply then anointed one of the early hominid couples, put his spirit on them and said, they're Adam and Eve. That's not what the Bible is teaching at all, and that's verbal sleight of hand again. Jesus in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6 clearly affirmed there was a first biological man and woman, and, this, and marriage is at stake here, friends. And talk about something that's under attack right now. We need to hear this. The Pharisees came to him, verse 3, verse, chapter 19, <clears throat> and they tested him. 
by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any and every cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male, female? What's he referring to here? Genesis, chapter 1, chapter 2, what we call chapter 1 and 2. And he goes on, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So what's being said? It's very clear that Jesus viewed Adam and Eve as historical individuals. In other words, he teaches that the sanctity of marriage, the holiness of marriage, which is inviolable there in God's eyes, goes back and is dependent on a literal Adam and Eve. That if, in other words, if you dismiss a historic Adam and Eve, you are undermining God's blueprint for heterosexual marriage, the only definition of marriage recognized by God in the Bible. One man, one woman for life. That is what marriage is. And Jesus here is affirming that is dependent on a literal historic Adam and Eve. Listen, it should come as no surprise that the vast majority of those pushing the moral revolution, the LGBTQIA plus revolution, do not believe in a literal Adam and Eve and a literal Genesis. And when you dismiss that, you undercut God's view of marriage and you attack the whole institution of marriage. All right, time for summons. Let's land a plane. Three things this morning. Number one, are you teaching Genesis to your kids? If you have kids at home, grandkids, are you taking the time intentionally to show them the connection between all of life and how it goes back and giving them the why behind the, the Christian world life view and showing them how it's anchored in Genesis? I would encourage you to get a hold of Ken Ham's periodical Answers in Genesis. It's a very good tool. Take your kids or grandkids, nieces and nephews, on a tour down to uh, Noah's Ark, the big Noah's Ark exhibit down in Kentucky. Becky and I were there last fall. Extremely impressive. Or the Creation Museum. But vital that you either, we're turning our dinner tables into seminaries and we're teaching our children and evangelizing our kids and catechizing our kids and showing them the connections back to Genesis. We did this with our kids all the time. We didn't do it perfectly, but we were always trying to show them how all this stuff is linked together and why evolution, why believing that these are somehow myth is dangerous and deadly to the Christian worldview. Nextly, are you following God's blueprint for marriage, for your marriage? Do you believe that this is a sacred institution, that it is inviolable, that when somebody takes vows, when you take vows in front of people, that's why when I have a couple in front of me and they take sacred vows, I remind them, that it is better not to vow than to take a vow and break it. That these are sacred. Where's all they come from? It comes from Genesis. It comes from the first biological man, first biological woman that God joined in marriage. And most important, third thing this morning, have you believed in the gospel? Do you believe Jesus, who's called the second Adam, came to complete what the first Adam failed to do? Do you believe the good news that Jesus came to die for broken, sinful people? 
And if you repent and turn from your wicked ways and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in the Bible, you will be saved, rescued from the coming judgment and wrath of God. And then the very first command given to anybody who becomes a believer in Christ is to go under the waters of baptism. So let us be thankful we have a sure word from heaven. And let us not be embarrassed. Let us not be abrasive or arrogant about it. But let us be humble and fearless in teaching the next generation why a historical genesis is so critical to a Christian world and life view. Father, thank you that we have a clear word, both in the Hebrew and the English. And as we sing now, may we sing as people who have a fresh vision of what you are doing in the text of Scripture. Thank you for the first Adam and Eve and that they set the pattern for marriage and also explain why we desperately need a Savior. And I pray for those here this morning who may not know Christ, that today would be the day that they would repent and believe and be reconciled to you and find eternal joy. In Jesus' name, amen.